Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane and it's Tuesday, July the 7th. This week we're discussing faith-based healthcare, a fascinating topic as the Lancet Weekly Journal publishes a three-part series on the topic. Paper one in the series looks at the substantial contribution of faith-based healthcare in Africa. And paper three in the series is very much a call to action where authors connected with the series call upon governmental health agencies, NGOs and the faith community to work more closely together in the delivery of healthcare. But we're going to focus on paper two, which concerns controversies in the delivery of faith-based healthcare. It's a fascinating topic. Let's hear from our guest interviewee, who is lead author of that paper two controversies paper, introducing himself. I am Andrew Tompkins. I am a professor of international child health, and I work at the Institute of Global Health at University College London. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. You're the lead author of paper two in the series, and this is looking intriguingly at controversies concerning faith-based healthcare. This sounds controversial in its own right. Presumably it's a very difficult area to research. How did you go about doing the research for this paper, and what were the main barriers that you encountered or difficulties that you came across? It's not an easy paper to write, and we've had a team of people working on this for about two years quite intensively. Perhaps I could just give a bit of the background. The first is uh, uh, quite widely acknowledged that there is seriously inadequate health care um, in developing countries, especially for hard-to-reach populations. I think we're all aware of that. Uh, the second thing that's come up is that while it is widely recognized that faith-based healthcare organizations have been playing um, a key role. There have been questions about differences in viewpoints which might affect attitudes and personal health behavior. They might affect the uptake of healthcare services and the requirement for those healthcare services and also basically whether people were really needing those healthcare services. And unfortunately, when we started to look at this whole question, we found very little in the way of analysis of the interface between religious faith uh, and healthcare. So that's, as it were, the background. So we did a standard things of doing literature searches, um, using a wide range of things, obviously starting with PubMed, but using um, a, a much wider range of search engines than one would normally use in biomedical uh, reviews. And we then extended that search into websites and uh, other information sources from, from groups of, of a wide range of interest. And we, we recognized at an early stage that we would need to convene meetings and to have a, a wide-ranging um, series of discussions with people with a lot of expertise in different faiths and with different faith-based healthcare. So it was partly literature research, it was partly uh, convening meetings with um, a range of people, and uh, you ask about the challenges, well, um, <laughs> the challenges are, 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 are mainly because the whole relationship between faith, religious faith that is, and personal beliefs and practices in healthcare 
um, is not a, a, an immediately uh, directly attributable one. For instance, one might say, I have such and such a faith, and therefore I behave in such a way. But in fact, the thing that becomes quite obvious once one looks at it is that the faith-healthcare relationship has to be considered in the light of other factors, which are things such as culture, uh, socioeconomic status, uh, political issues, uh, legal issues, and uh, somewhat sadly, extremist ideological viewpoints. So we basically looked at the whole question of the controversies, that's the differences of opinion, differences of viewpoints between faiths and sometimes within faiths from a series of healthcare challenges. And that's basically how we structured the, the review. Turning to some of the specific controversies themselves, I guess the kind of topics that one will read in the paper are perhaps unsurprising, family planning, abortion, end-of-life care, gender issues, just, just to name a few. Is there any particular area uh, that you think is worth highlighting where, frankly, scientists, healthcare practitioners and faith-based organizations need to come more into alignment where there's still too much of a discord because of the difference between what medical science wants, wants to do and what faith uh, might be saying about that particular area of healthcare. Well, as you, you say, there, there are uh, differences of opinion, um, and, and yet at the same time, there is remarkably uh, extensive experience in ways in which different faith groups have actually contributed towards healthcare. What we did, we actually identified four health damaging practices which were obviously a key um, challenge to, to the whole of health in the developing world. And these started with child marriage, female genital mutilation, uh, violence against women, and uh, opposition to immunization. And then uh, we also identified four key health service provision issues, sexual and reproductive health, as you exactly say, that obviously covered the, the, the range of viewpoints on the sanctity of life when, when life starts and the types of uh, technology that were acceptable. It also covered HIV, AIDS, and end-of-life issues, and also involved the potential role of faith activities in healthcare. So there were a range of things. But Perhaps the one that has been particularly successful, and yet there is a lot of progress still to be made, has been the, the interface between faith and healthcare in the HIV-AIDS provision. Now, I'm old enough to be able to remember the appalling situations, as I've spent much of my professional career working in Africa, in the early days when people were just dying um, in in their hundreds and thousands from from HIV. When it was and an that, acute when it was an acute illness before antiretrovirals. When it was an acute illness, and this was before the days of antiretrovirals. And at that time, what was really uh, uh, really awful, to be quite blunt, was that the healthcare services had nothing to offer because they had no treatment, uh, and they were doing just looking after people as they died. Uh, sometimes compassionately, uh, sometimes not. And at that time, some of the faith organizations were not helping very much because they were very judgmental. 
um, and uh, there was definitely a, a serious problem of stigma, partly as a result of cultural and societal objections, and partly because of certain faith objections uh, to the very fact of the way that HIV had been transmitted. Over really, uh, uh, remarkably quickly, over a period of years, there was a much greater involvement of the faith groups with the um, healthcare programs. And it was actually the faith groups who really took the lead in this because they had something to offer because they were looking after people who were dying and who were dead. And the healthcare services, the, the secular healthcare services, really had nothing to offer. And so what was interesting to see the complete change in attitude um, towards people with HIV. And then as the drugs came in, there were obviously opportunities for the healthcare programs to be much more actively involved. And then there were the whole key question of how to identify, how to diagnose people in, in the community at an early stage, but before their CD4s had dropped such that they had a precipitate illness. And um, what was being particularly interesting has been to see the way in which now that the faith care groups are sometimes leading the community actions, uh, for instance, there's door-to-door testing going on now in quite a number of African countries, which is actually run by the faith groups. And so the working together um, of faith and government health clinics and other organizations has, has, has actually worked very, very well. But there's a lot of opportunity which is uh, ahead, of, ahead of us to, to make sure that what the faith group can offer and what the government health service can offer can be pulled together most optimally. Yeah, and, and be complementary. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, particularly this interesting question of, I mean, the, the government would love to be able to identify people at um, an, an early stage of illness so that they um, they get caught when they've got better, higher CED forecasts and, and get access to treatment. And there's a lot of evidence to say that mortality from HIV would be reduced as a result of that. Um, but what's interesting is that the government often hasn't got the confidence of people in the community, whereas the faith groups do have the confidence. Because they're close to the, the ground and they're more They're closer to the ground. Yeah. They know they've been there. They've been trusted. Um, the, 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 the faith groups have been there for, um, in many cases, several hundreds of years. And so that is it's very interesting to, 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 to see that. And one particular thing that's happened actually since we started writing the paper, uh, which has been the interaction of the um, faith groups and the government in relation to Ebola. Now, initially in West Africa, and I was in Sierra Leone a year before last, um, the government uh, was making all sorts of edicts about how to prevent and Ebola and how to manage um, Ebola people, people who died. And, and it just wasn't working because they were just was giving edicts and telling people and putting them into, um, uh, in, 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 not, not into prison, but they were um, basically locking people up. But what happened was that the, when the churches and the mosques started to work together, and actually worked with the people, you found that, ah, they actually changed their lives. And so, again, there's another example of the benefit, perhaps, of the faith group 
being that they were trusted and therefore people followed um, their advice. Perhaps it was a, 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 an example of the ways in which things could be much better in the future because the faith groups didn't just regard themselves as somebody who would care for somebody who was dying, but they actually saw themselves as playing a key role in changing um, public health behavior. Yeah. And that was a very interesting um, example of, of working together. That's terrific. Uh, we must close shortly, uh, Andrew. Um, fascinating though this is. And we urge everyone listening to this uh, Faith and Health series podcast, please go online, read the papers. They're all freely available. And the comments and all the other related uh, content too on, on, on the Faith and Health webpage we've created on thelancet.com. Final question, Andrew, relatively briefly, if you can. There is a call to action, actually. That's the, really the, the, the job of, of Paper 3, which I know you're, you're not a, an author of, but clearly everyone connected with this series is connected with the overall outcome that we want from this series. Do you want to just art articulate what, what needs to happen now? Because from the outside, it seems to me as though this is an, an enormous area affecting global health, crossing cultures, crossing faiths, which are varied, of course. It's a fascinating area, but it sounds like perhaps we're at um, the end of the beginning. I think that's a really um, important observation. Um, I think there are, there are three outcomes that uh, certainly uh, we on our paper, and I know the rest of the uh, authors on the other papers would like to see. First is that faith leaders need to become more health aware. There are enormous opportunities for faith leaders to increase their recognition of the role that their sacred texts, their teachings, their history can play in improving health promoting behavior, uh, decreasing health damaging behavior, and increasing provision and uptake of services, particularly uptake of services. So the health group can make, sorry, the faith group can make a, a major role. The second is obviously the health leaders themselves, the national program leaders, and also the international policy makers who tend to be in international organizations. Now, traditionally, they have been um, very much from a secular point of view, not regarding faith as something that they wanted to engage with. And in fact, there's been quite a lot of pressure from uh, fundamentalists, secularists to remove faith from health. So they have largely worked in their own area, developing technically very sound policies, but not involving health. So I think the second thing would come out would be the need for the health promoters, uh, the health policy makers to become faith aware. And the third thing would be the donors. And uh, there are some excellent examples of ways in which uh, differed the International Department of British Overseas Aid and USAID, the um, International Aid Department of USA, have supported, monitored, and evaluated healthcare work done by faith groups um, in, a, in a number of countries. And I'm personally aware of some of those evaluations, and we reviewed those very, very carefully uh, for the paper. So three groups, and the, the, the single objective would be to achieve universal health coverage. We're now facing enormous challenges for achieving the sustainable development goals. We could only do that by universal health coverage, and in my view and the view of my colleagues, we can only do that by active collaboration between faith and healthcare leaders. 
Absolutely. It's as you say, it's part of uni universal health coverage. And of course, we're now moving the era and we're moving into now is out of MDGs into sustainable development. The relationship between healthcare provision and faith based healthcare has to be part of that sustainable development agenda, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yes. And there's a large meeting um, immediately after the launch at the World Bank. Um, looking at uh, ways in which uh, faith groups can actually make a much greater contribution towards uh, sustainable development. Fascinating talking to you. Uh, that's Professor Andrew Tompkins on the line, who is lead author of Paper 2, Controversies. Many thanks indeed for talking to the Lancet podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Many thanks again to Andrew Tompkins for that fascinating interview. And do look out for all the Faith and Health series papers and related content, all freely available on thelancet.com from Tuesday, July the 7th. Thanks for listening. See you next time.